This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. The first thing is that the, there are some people that, a lot of people here, have started reading the book, read into the book, and they want to know a little bit, like, how the book came to be, like why Rosh Hashanah felt it was important to write the book, how many hearings you've been putting since. What was the matana of the book? You know, I'll just say that in, in a short brief, when I was growing up, nobody learned in yeshivas and kolo. Um, the, the amount of people in Lakewood when I was a child, so let's say in the 60s that I remember already, there were times when Lakewood had probably 70, 80. By the time I left America in 1970, I think they had 300 Bachram and Yugalite total. 400 was the number that Hebron Aponovich had, and the Mir had probably 300. Those were the big yeshivas, and then there was very little else. Um, the, um, th- those were the numbers. And really the state of learning, both having people of caliber as Chaburis, people who, are, who know enough and understand enough that, that you feel Torah's living was, was very, very little. The idea that people need to know something and, and need to understand Yiddishkeit was very, very little. Nobody felt that way, nobody thought that way. And it was the whole of my the world was empty. And there were a few people that pushed to sit and learn and produce a door of real time Chachamim. But people that are sitting and learning so that there's a world where Tyrus is meaningful and Kachim is meaningful and Hilda Shabbos and Taruvis and etc. etc. And people that would become real Mashpiyah. That was my generation's Nisayim. And it was I came to the Mir Yeshiva in 1970. And I looked around, there were probably 150 Americans, maybe 175 Americans. The common denominator was that nobody's parents wanted them there. We were all there despite um, the better wishes of our parents. Um, it was... The Chabur is a revolution of the same idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, well, sometimes it's a revolution when, when it's the parents that want and the kids don't want. You know, there's, it goes both ways. Um, so that was, that, was the, that was the reality. And, and somehow, miraculously, I, I don't think people understand the miracle of it. When I was growing up, when I, went in, I, I learned in a yeshiva that was considered very middle of the road, like somewhat yeshivish, very good English department, it had over a thousand kids, the, the whole school. The question was how many would remain from by the end, and not how many would become more stark. That was the reality in those days. Um, the shuls, the, the orthodox shuls were slowly fading out and becoming conservative. That was across the board reality. There were orthodox Jews that became rabbis in conservative synagogues because they felt this is at least better than nothing. At least we're holding on to them. You know, whether they were right or wrong, but, but, but that was the mentality. Something happened and the world changed. A, a whole generation grew up, going to yeshiva was the norm, People became more observant, stronger, so on and so forth. And it, it, it blossomed in ways that it's, 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 it's a nace. Um, but, but nothing in that previous chinuch had prepared us for a generation of many, many, many wonderful Torah 
and where the reality is only 10 or 20 percent will remain, you know, learning clay Kodesh even for the rest of their lives. So you had a lot of inspiration and Musser and models for creating a, a, a world like that. Um, you, you don't have many, many models for how does that affect you when you go into the outside world and you have to retain the essence but change the garment. You know, and, and, and that started becoming an issue that people struggle with. And at that point in life, you're, you're not Nishiv anymore. Your Shul Rav might be a wonderful person, but his <coughs> job is to keep the Shul going, to answer Shilas. He may not be the person you can relate to. And, and many people, and, and in a lot of personal conversations, I felt and seen this issue again and again. People really, they, they, they believe in, 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 the, in the level of Ruchnis they had when they're Shiva, and when you begin seeing it fade, and, and not being able to figure out how to make it, how to translate it into that language, you really, really fall apart uh, because you feel your failure and that's it. So I, I, it's just a lot of conversation, interactions, um, other, there was something else published once that people responded in a way that I felt that way. And slowly these ideas began to develop. Um, in, in um, you know, it's, it's something that just absorbing people's feelings and emotions and been thinking about it for a long time and then I just decided to try to put it together and you know, went through a lot of revision. That's, that's where I'm coming from. I guess along those lines, the want to know, um, some guys, used to, I guess it used to be a mole that not everybody went to yeshiva, obviously, as the rest of saying. But some people feel like it's, you know, now you don't really have a choice. They get stuck into yeshiva and then they don't really have any place in yeshiva necessarily. It's not the right place for them. And then how does that, like, like, what is, like how are those people supposed to ever get a chizik and how are they supposed to walk away from, or is there anything to do about getting, having those people get a, like a chizik or walking away inspired from the so, yeshiva? I mean, the first thing that's important to understand that when you deal with your, your decisions are going to be broad strokes. They're not going to be, you can't, it, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm in a, a yeshiva that has a high school, boys high school, girls high school, college, yeshiva, it has a few institutions. And you see it in the boys high school, I'm not so involved day to day or hands on, but you know, parents expect tailor-made solutions, which is wonderful if, if your provider is a tailor. But if you walk into a suit store and, and, and you're buying a suit off the rack by Gear Suit, you're going to expect there's going to be either too short, too long, a little too tight, a little too loose. And you pick the best, the thing that you feel you can adapt the best. So the reality is, the only way it's possible to tailor make a program is one-on-one. -on -one. When you're sitting with a class of 20 kids, and a parent comes and says, my child needs special attention. I'm not denying that, but then what else everybody else? So, so let's look at the system and how it came to be developed. And, and, and I think sometimes it's, 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 it's important to try to understand where it's coming from. Um, in <coughs> Europe, my, far, uh, my memories of Europe uh, go back a hundred some odd years ago. Because my father was born in 1903, 1904. Um, and 
my father would talk a lot about life in Europe. My father was an old person, a relatively older person when the war was over with. Um, he had had a family, he, he, um, and he was very thoughtful. And, and so basically in the early times, let's say before World War I, especially in, in Eastern Europe, life was extremely regimented across the, across the board. <coughs> Jews, Goyim, especially Jews. You live in a shtetl, and life was, was revolved around the community. There were no other options. You couldn't walk out and hitch a ride to town. You know, there was no town. There was, you know, people, you, you, you had to be part of something. So you had your shtetl, you had norms, and people in those days had very strong sense of norms. People um, had very strict chinuch, where things were drilled into you, literally, and, 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 and it was, that was accepted, that was the norm. So a kid went to Cheder, where the Rebbe very, very strongly um, impressed on you very, very strong values, and what's right and what's wrong. He taught you Chumash, Mishnayis, and a bit of Gemara. At the age of 13 or so, um, most kids were expected to go work. That was reality. It was, in, in those days, n no work, no, no lunch, no supper, no breakfast. It, it, life was very tight. So you basically, when life expectancy was maybe in the 60s, and the, so you immediately, as soon as you got to that age, someone offered you to work as an apprentice for a baker. So you, you put in 10, 12 hours there, you, you came to the shul like everybody else went to shul, and that was life, and, and so on. Somebody bright, people had tremendous Abbasat Torah, and anyone that was considered bright, they found a Gemara Rebbe. <coughs> there were, yeshivas were somewhat developed in Lita early on and a little better, and you were sent off, it was the pride of town, and people did tremendous mysterious nefesh, and you went to yeshiva with tremendous sense of, wow. Um, in the early years, people didn't stay that long in yeshiva, except for the relative, for the handful of people that were like super, and that was life. So your Judaism was part and parcel of your life. There wasn't, it was inseparable, and that was the way in which people were, were confined, and, and it was the tr that was the Goyish world. If you <coughs> speak to anybody who went to public school, let's say pre-World War II, even after World War II, and teachers were there to teach you values, to wrap your knuckles, to, to make life miserable for you and and um, and you know and, and and teach you real values and make a good person out of you. And in the old days, if you came home and complained that the teacher hit you, um, your parents would probably hit you also saying that the teacher didn't do a good enough job and you probably need another patch or two. That, that was uh, you know it's funny, but it was that was the reality and that was life. Things changed dramatically. Um, the world became an open place. Um, all of a sudden, there was much more going on. People and got into learning, reading, understanding, university, thinking, um, intelligentsia. The world, it, it came to a head. It was bubbling. It came to a head. After World War I, what happened was the communities in, in, Lithu in Lita were destroyed. They, had, they, they, they were forced to leave during World War I. When they came back, the institution not anymore, life was radically different. And it was, it, so now that type of chinuch, till you're 13, could not keep you in any fold whatsoever. And people even were not interested in it anymore. It was a real churban. 
Um, Hungary was the only country that was probably different, not Hungary, Slovakia, the Slovakia part of Hungary was different. And, and th that was like, especially in America, where you, you have so much opportunity, you're not locked into any life. If you're a great guy and you play stickball with the guys down the street and they're Americans and they like you, then you're American. You go to public school and you, you have a, a, a nice friend or two who are not you. You go to a college, th that the, 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 the community keeping you in its fold evaporated and it was nonsense. The shuls were not terribly inspiring places. You go there, you, you barely know what they're saying. You, you sing the Yigdal, you sing Abdon Olam, and, and that's it. It, it, it. it was, I remember the generation that I grew up with, the Lower East Side, were people who were um, second, you know, the, the first generation Americans, their parents were immigrants. They were traditionally Jewish. They didn't know much, but they, they kept to it as much as they knew, as much as they could. And they had the right heart, they had a heart for it, but they really knew very little, and it was an uninspired feeling. And the kids, those who went to yeshivas to learn, became Torah-observant Jews. Everyone else evaporated into who knows where. Um, didn't remain Jewish, basically. That, that, was, that was the main street. So now we're confronted with, what do we do? How do we raise somebody to be Jewishly inspired and, and be a Torah Jew. So the yeshiva started in the late 50s, 60s, is when all the famous yeshivas, Philadelphia and Long Beach and Scranton, and, 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 and there in those days were St. Louis, Boston had yeshiva for a while, uh, Denver, you know, all the yeshivas, the Lakewood yeshivas started then, um, and, and, and people that went there, all, the vast majority of them became Torah people, people who knew what they were doing, people who felt connected and inspired. And learning does do that because it makes you an active participant. It helps you understand what you're doing. It's like, you know, they used to have a slogan, our best customer is an educated consumer. If you're a rabbi telling everybody which page to open on what to say, how long do you think it's going to stick? But when you yourself understand, this is to fill, this is a chiv, this is a mikah, this is not a why are they saying this? What's this? You're part of the process. And it changed we don't now we're talking about the problems of yeshivas that's amazing because others, they were the best solution for a problem that had no in, in my days when i was going to shul i was going to go up my father was a shamis the, the the way in which the young generation was meant to be inspired was we had a minion that started at 10 o'clock that already that's very good you know that's that's already very inspiring um we 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 dove in something or other we had a story Treats, and then we went up to sing Enka Lokeno and, and the rest of it. Um, I was very bashful. I remember I, w I refused to be like the chazan for Enka Lokeno, and the Gabe was furious. He told my father, I've been seeing, how your son going to be a rabbi if you don't do the Enka Lokeno? That was, that was the, 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 the smarts of it. So let's understand, first of all, that learning as a, as a major activity is both educating and it is also extremely, it, it, it absorbs the juices of a teenager. You fight, you argue, you say, you, you criticize, you go back and forth, you have conflict. It, it, it is something which by and large is, as far as you know, the best <coughs> tool we have. Hasidim don't put such emphasis on it, but they have a community that looks a lot more like the old community. Extremely restrictive, 
extremely pushes, you know, there's no two ways about it. This is what you have to, this is right. Get married at 18 or 19, start your family and move on. If you fit in that community, that, that sort of plays the role of the yeshiva. And even that has its problem. So now we're stuck with, uh, with finding, but we began to realize that it's it, it, like every system, it is far than just one size fits all. Um, you know, the, the, the uh, I, I tend to be taller and bigger, and I always, when I would see in a department store, one size fits all, I would be thrilled till I realized I'm not part of the all. I would, try, I would try on whatever it is, and I would say all but people who are 6'2 and whatever. Not, not, not a good fit. It's not. So we have yet, the, the problem is not just to loosen the yeshiva's environment it, and demands, it's how do you construct a positive environment for a person who's not into intellectual retirement. And it's a natural percentage of people. It's not people that are wrong. It's people, that's part of a spectrum. I think it's part of the challenge of our generation to rethink and ask ourselves, what framework can we construct that will give inspiration and, and meaningful connection to, um, to, to people that all day learning and the type of learning that's happening doesn't fit. Um, that I think is a challenge of our generation. I, I, I don't have easy solutions, or if a client has a solution, but other than that, I, I know, th but the truth is, a lot of thinking. It's not just a question of not having learning. The question is, where do you get that strong attachment? What's going to give it? You know, inspirational talks are once, twice, three times. You can't build a school curriculum around inspirational talks. It's, it's absurd. But you have to do something all day long. So in the old days, when you, when you were baking bread 12 hours a day, you didn't need to develop it. What are, what's going to be the curriculum? People are not doing actual work from, from until they're 22, 23 at the earliest. So what's going to fill a day? Um, those, are, those are challenging questions. It needs not only just to loosen it, it needs to figure out how to get to that same goal. And you know, I don't know, I just, at least I think it's helpful if we understand what the issue is and where it's coming from, and it's coming on top of an amazing success. Uh, you know, the, the children, uh, the, the, it's, it's one generation later, the people in my class, their parents had no idea what it was, and at, if they didn't have yeshiva, they just went off, and once the children went to yeshiva, they're willing to work a whole lifetime that their children should be zochot, to be in Alosh Torah. Well, it's an amazing transformation. Now the question is, it's not one size fits all, and it won't be one size fits all. And how do we deal? What are what are good paradigms to, to, to establish? If someone has an answer, please. Uh, you will be the next savior of the door. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm saying it facetiously, but it's honestly so. Next, the next question is on people's minds is that um, some people, a lot of people here know, I guess maybe the amount of divorce, the divorce rate among young married people. But they get married and like quickly they get divorced and people break engagements. People are scared. Like, like, what's the cause of that? What can we do? What kind of what's the meter that we should work on as the, as they as they go to get married? What are the meters that people have to work on? So, I, I think um, <coughs> a, a, a a lot of times paradigms of of good marriages are always important. That's obvious. But, but there's another, again, let's go what was and 
let's explain how we got to where we got, and then let's try to understand, at least we can have some, some sh paradigm shift mentally. Um, once upon a time, marriage was considered to be an absolute necessity. There's no sense not being married unless you, you, you know, you're, you're, you're at the fringe. And this was, again, this was Jewish, this was, was non-Jewish. I mean, when I grew up, um, a mother, a father, two children and a dog was all family, and only the dog remained in that whole, in that whole uh, setup today. <laughs> Every, everything else, I, you know, I, I saw once, I remember on one of my trips back to America, I saw an advertisement. It was tongue-in-cheek, but sometimes the tongue-in-cheek tells you it was an advertisement like this. It had three scenes. A, a, a guy with a girlfriend, three pictures, and a dog. A, a, a boy, a girl, and a dog. The girl was different in each one. The dog was the same, the man was the same. And it said on it, we know times have changed and relationships shift. But some relationships are for keep. A dog is forever. And it was put out, and it was put out by the ASPCA that people should not think of divorcing and abandoning their dogs. I'm serious. That was the advertisement. Okay. But, but it was considered to be extremely, extremely a family. And getting divorced, and a family was seen, there was a word responsibility, um, caring for, etc., etc. There, there was a lot of values that were not that far, not that deep from Torah. It was about what are the word duty, obligation, responsibility, um, were words that rung. So my question, my, you know, I'm responsible to a spouse. I'm responsible for my children, for my community. <coughs> the word burden, duty, obligation, responsibility were, were very, very strong words considered to be the mainstays of society. The world changed. The 60s, the world said, stop thinking that way. You only make yourself miserable that way. Life is about yourself and enjoying yourself. The word love stopped meaning and um, responsibility for somebody else, and it started meaning feeling physically good. The word love changed dramatically. So when you love a child means even if it gets on your nerves and you'd rather not be there, you are responsible for him and you will make sure he doesn't fail. To being, the word love became to mean like, just a strong way of like and that's it. And the word family, which means responsibility, children, obligation, none of that. So, so now when, when a person asks himself, um, what type of shit up I do that will make me feel happy and good? And then two people get married like that, and, and the blanket is short. Also, people don't have the, the experience understanding that part of marriage is working hard, trying to bridge a gap, um, and, and so on. The, um, the, the, having a marriage is a building process, which means you start out with another person who, A, is a different person than you, is very different, and no matter how similar and how much alike, you have, might have the same goal, but you're different. And you need to ask yourself to be sensitive about that person. She needs to ask yourself a sense of yours and how things could work together. You need to, to, to ask yourself, um, are we building the same, do we have the same goal basically in a basic way? And understanding that a lot of it is the satisfaction of building, which means going through tougher times, stressful times, 
and 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 uh, working around it and and and, and getting and you know succeeding. It doesn't mean a person gets into a sticky situation, but it means that any marriage, any marriage requires a process of of of, of building. And and if we would understand it that way, you know, the fairy tales we have is you meet this very beautiful princess, and and you know she she's you just can't live without her and get married and live happily ever after. But it's a fairy tale from the beginning to the end. Um, it, your personal pleasure of being with that person is not what it's about. Um, it's, it, it's about being able to work as a partnership together to building a goal. And the question you need to ask yourself, does the person have maturity? Am I mature? Is that person sensitive to somebody else? Am I sensitive? Is she easy to get along with? Am I easy to get along with? Do we have the same picture of what life is? Are we both realistic about how to go about it? Finances are an important, are an important part of it. How's that going to work? And, and so on. And, uh, and if you anticipate work, meaningful work, then, then a lot of things will be different. But if you anticipate living happily ever after, meaning in your fantasy as some sort of dream world, it, it's going to collapse. And, and I think those are things that we need to understand. Um, the skills of being able to cope with other people, the skills of understanding where the other person is mutually that way. The, the skill of being able to override what I would like for the other person and mutually that way. Th those are those are aspects that really are, you know, not I think not stressed enough and not understood enough. Yeah. The next question is that we live in a generation where the temptations for the desires are so strong. It's it's uh, how are we expected to compete with all of it? And I guess part of that same question is, like, how would we build a Torah home? I guess with the last question, how could we build a Torah home in today's technologically advanced era? So I actually think that, the, like you said, the first about all the temptations and so on and so forth, I think it's actually very helpful. Don't quote me on that that way, but <laughs> I, let me give an example. L let's give an example. Imagine you come into a place where they have a Viennese table, a very fancy Viennese table, and you look at it, and oh my gosh, there's like, wow, it's, and you know what to eat first, it, it's, it's crazy, all your juices are working, and, and so on and so forth. Okay, now imagine you're not the first person that walked in, you walk in an hour late. And, and imagine you see the following scene, you'll, 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 you'll excuse me for being graphic, people stuffing stuff down their throat, throwing it up, and stuffing more and throwing it up. I think that that would hold back the temptation because you'd start realizing that craving and temptation, not disciplined, lead to nothing. Um, the fact there used to be taboos. This is taboo, that's taboo, the other thing's taboo, and we have managed to get rid of, so as, as, as as long as there's a taboo in place, there's an allure of the forbidden. Um, it's a Gemara. Gemara says, mind novim taku. That when you, get, when you get something that you're not supposed to have, you, it's, it's, a, it's doubly sweet. <coughs> so part of the thrill is doing something you shouldn't do. Um, and, and, but now, um, you see people have no taboos, and not a single person is happy. Um, ask anybody, uh, and you look around and see people who have the money and the ability to do anything they want are still crazy with desire. So you take a look and say to yourself, 
this person's been married nine times plus 90 not married ones plus this and he still can't keep quiet so so that tells me that this is a road nowhere it's like standing at that table and throwing up repeatedly just stuffing yourself again and again because you lost control to, to you lost control so you say to yourself the only way that I can have a healthy enjoyment of life is reining myself in. I think at, at a point where people have no inhibitions, are lacking nothing, and if you take a sober look and there's nothing there, nobody walks around saying, I have it and I'm happy, then, then it tells you, you know what, I realize that there's nothing at the end of that road except a cliff. And once we understand it, we have an easier time, then at least Seichel kicks in and says, no, if I climb that other peak, I'm not going anyplace. I'm just going to fall off the other side. So in some ways, in some perverted way, when you come to the end of it, it, it becomes, you look around and say to yourself, where is happiness? I want to tell you a story that shook me. And sometimes you learn Musa from somebody, and it sticks with you. I used to work in Torah. A long time, 83 to 90, I was teaching, and then at one Tukuf, I was also involved in accepting like incoming students and setting up a schedule. Whatever that was, I don't know, some so so part of my work. There was somebody sitting across me, and somebody came in. This person's had become from three years before. Whatever it is, had come to Yeshiva, become from him and his brother. His brother was brilliant, his brother succeeded in learning, a year or two later he was in a, in a, in a, in a Israel or wherever, and he was doing amazingly well, and he was like a you know, super yeshivish person. This person that I was speaking to was there for a year, year and a half, learning didn't do it for him, he got very frustrated, he had his brother as a, a role model, which he couldn't keep up to, and he left the whole thing and went back to Manhattan. There's an investment banker, he had a condominium, Hell's Kitchen or Chelsea, and, and, and had everything anybody could desire. The whole, with no, no religious uh, restrictions. Fine. This was two or three years later down, he was sitting there, and I was trying to make some program for him. I said, how about learning to sit? It doesn't like this. It doesn't like this. A after a few tries, I felt it was very negative. I, you know, I, I, I guess I lost it, and I said, you know, if you really don't like it, why'd you come back? And he looked me straight in the eye, and he said, Rabbi, I assure you, if there would have been one thing worth saying for, I wouldn't be here. And I said, it's honey, Benin, it's honey. You know, I learned the lesson. And um, yes, I'm sitting in Shiva, and I think if, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're in Manhattan and you have no inhibitions, you, you have got an aid in Aliyah Domus. And he, he had no reason to come back, nothing. I assure you, no pressure. His family was not religious. His brother was off learning about something. And he told up his square in the eye, and he said, Rabbi, if I assure you, if I would had one thing to go back for, I would uh, to be there. I would not have come. So yes, so 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 the next piece of road looks good. The next piece of road looks good. But stand back and look at the people that have gone the entire road. They're all off the cliff. There's nobody. Look at all the famous and big actors who could do whatever they want. They all end up dying of overdose or running for president, one or the other, <laughs> but, 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 but nothing else. Um, look at people on lottery tickets. People who won lottery tickets, they almost invariably end up a wreck because when you, Taiva is not, it's, it's not a road, it's a, it's a drive, it's a blind drive to no place. So, you know, in a perverse way, I think having um, seen what an unbridled Taiva world looks like, it might actually, we might actually be able to get some sense. 
question. Yes. How do you explain that to a kid? <clears throat> what age, what context? We're talking about uh, raising a kid in a way that he'll appreciate and understand that. You know what, you can bring it down to his age. You can ask him, um, does he appreciate more when he gets a present? I, I ask kids, when we have a vat I'll show about, I ask him, tell me, I have two paths for your life. One is, you win a lottery ticket for $100 million at the age of 20. The other one is, you have a brilliant idea for business, the first year you break even, the second year you pull out $30,000. Next year it's 100. Every year it gets better and better and better, but you never reached 100 million. Which life would you want? Most kids will say, I understand that the second one is a much more rewarding life. And if, if you raise a kid, like I tell them, yes, have you ever overeaten? And then your stomach hurts. So you also understand that doing too much is not good. So the ideal is that a person has the control of himself, to, he has to know what's good and how much to control himself. That, that is Yisrael Vesherish of, 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 of all of Torah in a certain sense. Is there any way to say that the Torah, like, is, is it advice to be given, like, oh, just learn and that will overcome the competition, so to speak, or it has to be a... You know what, the Musa predicated, and, and I was brought up with, with a Musa, that unless you help people clarify these issues, it won't happen by itself. Musa came to correct that. There are, there's one in a million that is so absorbed in the learning that Yes, they're, they're carried away in the world, they have no need. Most other people struggle, and they, at least they taste another world, and they need to understand these, these yesodos about what drives a person, how does one control himself, what's the bigger picture. And there's another Chayel Kaptor that's called Agarata, and, and that in the big picture includes all of that. Yeah? The second part of the question was how to build a Torah home with all the technology and so, like everything else, it starts with a person himself. Um, the, the children have a very keen sense of what their parents are really about, not only what they preach. And making a cheshbon anefesh, just like for yourself, what should I do, what should I not do? What things um, are important things in life? What things are necessary things in life? And what things are unnecessary and what things are harmful? That's the olive base of a cheshbon nefesh. So a person makes a cheshbon in himself personally what to do. A home is also like that. What atmosphere, what, what, a Shabbos table, it needs to be pleasant, needs to be enjoyable. It's not, it's not a marathon drushes. But what will give it a Shabbos feel? What topics talking about won't give it a Shabbos feel? What do we do special that the kids will like and find pleasant and historic? Um, you know, using, trying to ask yourself these questions. We're going on vacation, it's good. How much do we need? Where's a good place to go? It's not all going to be learning, but at least you ask yourself, this activity, what does it contribute? Does it, does it, does it contribute anything? Relaxation is a perfectly good thing, and it has, but I need to put a cap on it. I need to say to myself, how much downtime do we need? How much time do we need just where people just kind of patch around? We do need, we're not malachim. But how much time and how do we put a cap to it? Um, you know, all, all these are questions. No one's going to get it perfect because we, we don't know what perfect is. But at least if you, if you use that as a yardstick, you have a chance of, of, of putting in some correct uh, parameters. Is it better to bring things into the house and learn, teach the kids how to live with it? Or 
the other extreme, which shelter them, and now you're risking that if they get exposed to the outside world, or we should just... You have to ask yourself reasonably, what will my child, what do I expect my child to come exposed to? You know, can I reasonably expect my child to be insulated all of his life from this, or not? If yes, maybe, but Rav Shem Shafal Hirsch has a very strong piece, it's in, in Hanukkah, I believe, on Chinuch, and he says, don't fool yourself into thinking that you, that that you can insulate your children. The world is wide open, that was without the internet. And he said, they will understand. So it's important, A, to expose you. It's, it's just like, let, let me, let's take a same example. For those of us who vaccinate our children, the question is, what do we vaccinate them for? I mean, there are enough diseases yellow fever and dengue fever and, and you name it, Africa is a star. <laughs> you, don't, you don't vaccinate your children with every single disease in Africa. You say to yourself, what is reasonable that will be exposed to? If he travels to Africa, there's a list in, 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 the, in, the, you know, in, in the, um, the Department of State, what, what else you need. So a person needs to make a, 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 a cheshben more or less one. He needs to create an environment where if a kid is exposed to something else, he's not um, scared to tell you about it. And you need to be able to, to deal with not overkill. If, if you come along and say, don't play with because all grandma are terrible, evil, wicked people, um, the kid will begin to, he might find out that it's not like that. And, and then you're stuck. There's a temptation sometimes to overdo it, if you explain to him in a reasonable way why it is that what we do is right and why what, 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 whatever it is exposed to is wrong, it, it might not have that, you know, it, it, it might have that immediate effect, that perceived effect, but in the long term, it'll stay there. And the kid, if something happens to the kid, he will, he will be able to tell you about it and tell you, I saw this, and you can explain to him why it's a bad thing to see and why it's wrong. As long as he doesn't feel that he loses his standing in your eyes and he can be comfortable speaking with you, then I think that's, that's a key to making sure that something will come up, something will happen. And, and you need to be able to have a framework of relationship where he doesn't feel that he can't talk to you about it. Yeah? The next question is? By talking about framework, what time is it now? I, 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 it's a, uh, it's a clock here, yeah, because it's dangerous for, for to sit around without a clock, yeah, okay. A rabbit without a clock is not a good, uh, yeah. A lot of people want to know how to deal with um, friends or family that go after their relation to deal with them. So, th- there's a chazal about Tanitvel Yo, Rav Golba brings it, that somebody's at a Yo and he asked him, is Torah about people or about, a, you know, is, is Torah Shem's Rotson? And people are, are the means, or Torah is a way to pr- to to to, um, to bring people out to their best. Um, and, he, and basically, a big focus on the person. The the the, the, the answer of Yo is that both come together. The two loves that come together. Um, if you really l- let's let's understand it. I have somebody has somebody close went off to Derek. So the first question is, if 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 it's if I'm angry. And I express my anger, shame, frustration. That it's about me, not about him or her. So, so, so now, um, the the, the you know, I, I'll, I can tell you a story. 
is there was a, a, somebody in, in, in near where I live who, a teenager, decided to drive his family car at 100 miles per hour <laughs> um, up a curve, smashed, totaled the car, escaped unscathed, but the father's first reaction was, oh my gosh, $25,000 down the drain. Now, I, I believe me, the kid deserved whack, but there's a reaction <laughs> there that's, that's so, so it's about the car more than about the kid. I, I don't, I'm not judging anybody, you know, I understand darn well why the father said. But you have somebody who's gone to there. If it's really about him, then anger, pushing the person out for no reason, you know, so on and so forth, is not, that's not the reaction. So, so now it's about you feeling bitter, frustrated, upset, angry, disappointed. So that is not a good message, one. So why, I mean, it's, it's, it's still the person I care for. It's my child, my brother, my mate, my, my parent, whoever it is, special. and I need to ask myself, that's, you know, and I need to, and I need to um, I- express it that way. And it's hard because it's mixed. It is when a person has a child, he's put so much energy into it, he's embarrassed with it. Those are all true. And yet I need to be able to sort that out. One. Two. Most everybody who's gone off the derech is a complicated situation. It's not that he learned Bormitzi and came to a different maskana um, than you did. It's, that's not. It's somebody who's been bored stiff and hater of school and can't wait to get out of it. He's just not into learning and this has drove him crazy. It's somebody who's been constantly humiliated on and on and on. You're stupid, you're an idiot, why can't you learn? Look at your brother, look at your mother, look at this guy, that guy, ashamed, your grandson, this person, that person, on and on. How long do you think you can take that? You have, unfortunately, many children have been molested and nobody was there for that. In girls, it's almost 100% of the girls off the derrick from normal from homes that are molested. You have kids who, whose parents are psychopaths. I, I, I spoke to a Chassidish boy a month ago in America, a, a foster parent, also very, very chashur, the foster parent was a person, brought this kid to me. He's a 13-year-old kid. The mother would throw the kids out of the house, literally, for whatever infraction she decided was bad. And the kids are all off the derrick. This is a Satma family. And the father molested two children, and the mother would throw the kids out of the house and allow them to come in for whatever infraction she decided deserves it. So what do you expect out of the kid? I mean, the, the fact that the, the, that the kid is halfway normal, Zachat, on and on. There, there are, there's nobody who's, there are people who've done, uh, let me tell you something, there was a boy who learned the high school class many years ago, who went off the and, and one of the babies said to him, why, what? And he said, I want to tell you something. My father would beat me every day, and I prayed to God every day that he saved me from my father. And one day I told God, it's your last chance. And my father threw me down a flight of steps. So it's over. What do you answer? So, so, so there's so many, very rarely, a child normally fits into an environment if it's a happy environment. Yes, so, so you know, you can, you, you can, you, you, you can wear a, a slide shirt instead of a white shirt, fine. But a radical change of off the derech, there is hurt, anger, bitterness, trauma. It, and it comes in many forms, in many ways. So understand that. It, understand that, the, you, and, the, and if you treat him like a human being, I want to share a story with you. It's a shaking story. And, and I heard it from the person himself. I was involved with somebody that was, um, was going through a rehab process and 
they, it was in a place in Israel, and they had a representative in America, a chassidish person, a chassid, real chassid. He had gone through rehab himself, and uh, he was a grown person with a family and was now successfully a settled businessman. So on. He had a long history of drug abuse and alcohol abuse and finally made a mention of something like that. And I was speaking with him and I asked him how, no, how he got to it and, you know, like how he was involved, whatever. He said he grew up in a Hasidic community in Eretz Yisrael and he said, um, you know, and then he, he was on drugs and everything. He said that he was, he was rehabilitating himself and part of the, of, of, uh, um, Alex Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, is you have like a, a mentor, I forgot what they call it, somebody that, 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 a sponsor, a sponsor, yes. And this person, and he was, and he was walking and he slipped. He slipped meaning he decided he's back into drugs again. And he called the sponsor, the sponsor was not available, but the sponsor called somebody, he was in Manhattan, called somebody in Manhattan that said, you know, he'll talk to him. So this person was an African-American in Harlem. And this guy is this Siddishing Gaban's name is Pinny. So he went to meet him and the warmest, nicest person greeted him and gave him a big hug. And he said, Pinny, I like you, God like you. Don't do anything to hurt yourself. So he told me, I went through Hasidish Hadarim all my life. I was told that if I do this, I'm an ace of a Russia. If I do this, I'm this Russia, that Russia. The first person that told me God loves me was an African-American in Harlem. And that <laughs> saved my life. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a story that when I heard it from this person, it shook me to my core. Um, but yes, so, 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 so this is the key. A person is, is geared to flow along with a society, provided he can. If he's been derailed, he's a wreck, and, and you're. And most everybody that's been derailed, it's it's a process of derailment. Um, and, you know, and 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 unfortunately, we keep looking at the religious problem. It's a much deeper problem. It's it's a problem in, in the core of a person. It, uh, I, I've not to meet anyone. I've unfortunately met people who've left. At, at totally, there's no happy person there, because th they haven't dealt with the core problems and 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 eating bacon doesn't doesn't make up for a lost childhood and it does it gives it maybe the satisfaction of in the face if you're angry at your father and you show up with a, with a ham sandwich or your kipper it helps you his anger and his fury it's sort of a, a revenge of sorts that's about it so I'll talk upon him that's is, I mean it's something to, to remember I think and if you at least understand that then 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 you have a whole different approach to the person Next question is that um, let's say there's a person who leaves yeshiva and he has a tear towards a certain type of learning. He still wants to know if there's like a certain type of learning that, like an inker, he has to have when he's when he's out in the world. Is there a type of learning that's an inker that he has to have part of his day? Um, so in the broad strokes, halacha. I'm not halacha mice as much. Halacha versus agada and gemara. In other words, this is a point I try to make in, in the book. Um, I think halacha mice is very important. Learning, inspiring Musa is very important. But you you can't, you you cannot do away with some sort of core Torah learning, which means Talmud Bavli at some level, at some direction, 
you become part of the process of Torah when you do that. So the learning, the, the, the absorbing the learning, that they're being into it. Now, different people, different time frames, maybe you can't do it every day, maybe you can do it twice a week. You have to do it yourself, is there a shit you can attend, it's not a shit. There are many variables at work, but, but the, the anchor of that is, it, it makes you feel that Torah is a reality, it's solid, it puts people on a solid footing. And that's why it's important to always hold on to that anchor. That, that I think is, and, and the other pieces are important. Allah al is very important, obviously, if you're running a home and so on. And, and so is, um, and, and, and some sort of inspirational Musa. The next question is, if we'd be in Shushan today, a few thousand years ago, Rosh Hashim would probably be leading us in a blood fest. What, how do we understand the whole Amalek, killing out Amalek, what did they do wrong? Like, if they did something wrong, then maybe they shouldn't have existed. What's the whole Amalek thing? So, so let, let's, let's take a contemporary example, and let's try to translate. Again, I don't put to know, but what I could say is as follows. Imagine somebody here has a prophecy. Prophetic vision, and he hasn't been smoking anything, or, you know, <laughs> or, or, and, and hasn't been over drinking. He has a prophetic vision. Go to this in this hospital. Go into the newborn section, the neonatal uh, department, and take out a baby and kill him. We we probably could not do it. Rightfully so. Imagine that this baby grows up to be Adolf Hitler. Then the blood of anyone that he killed is on your hands. We definitely need to question ourselves. You know, if, you, if a person has that kind of vision, is, is he not imagining anything? Is, is, he, is he, you know, because it's, it's either the most terrible murder or the most terrible thing to refrain from it. HaKadosh Baruch Hu who created man and spoke about the is of Shvichas Domim of anything and anybody in the, in the strongest way possible, has said to kill Adam Malik. Um, the only explanation for it is there's something in their genetic material that makes them a liability for humanity forever. Um, and therefore, the only way we could have something like that is if HaKadosh Baruch says so. I want to add a perspective on this. Is the Rambam Mor Nebuchim. The Rambam Mor Nebuchim I, I, it's one of the things that bothers me is when people say, kill the Arabs, kill this, kill that, kill that, kill the other. This is Amalek, that's Amalek, he's Amalek. It, it, it's a terrible thing. I want to share a Rambam more of with you. The Rambam is, is in, it's, it's in one of the Prakim. He deals with um, sections in Chumash that seem to us of trivial value. And he said this was a bone of contention, Manasha. He would um, say that this is well, this is partially silly, that partially silly, the other partially silly. Says there's not a word in the Torah doesn't teach us something, and he gives a, a half a dozen parshas as examples and goes through it. So one of those parshas is the parsha at the end of Yishlach that tells me about all the families of Esau who married whom and who married this one and that one, the other one. It seems to us the most irrelevant parsha possible. Who cares who Esau married and who Alifa's married and who Amalek married and who is this guy married, that guy, other guy, and whose children? What for? So Ramam says as follows. Akarish Baruch Hu gave us a mitzvah 
to kill out a Molech. <coughs> and that mitzvah is extremely um, important. HaKadosh <coughs> Baruch Hu did not allow us to shed one drop of blood. And that's an extraordinary uh, 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 iser. He said, a Molech wasn't one, um, it, it, it wasn't like there was a Molech, you know, a Molech's man on Molech. It was a big family. And they intermarried and outmarried, and, and, and it was a mishmash. So we would capture somebody who claims to be a Moleki, but he's really not a Moleki. He, he's, 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 it, it's his mother after a Moleki, this one, that one, the other one. So we would be shedding innocent blood. So the Torah gave us the entire family tree. So before you kill someone, you have to make sure that this is the one case where the Torah said you have to kill somebody. Because if not, you're shedding innocent blood. Now, you have to understand something. Amalek and Esav were like in Vergefen, they, 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 were, they were family. I can't imagine that the, the other part of Esav's family were these wonderful tzaddikim and great people. They were close enough, they were one degree off Amalek. But that's enough that killing him is bloodshed. And it's Shvich Zdamim. And Akash Baruch didn't let David Amalek build a basement into Shvich Zdamim. So we need to understand Amalek as the great exception that only the creator of man could tell you that these people must be killed. And if a person doesn't, then the person takes responsibility for everything else comes out of Amalek. The way you would if you had Rahmanis on a Nazi, and then anything that happened afterwards, you, you carry liability. That's the way we have to look at it. You're going to the other extreme. You're going to Israel. So... Uh, well, you, you make these sharp turns really, really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, you know, we go from. Ex- yeah, what sorry. Mean, what does it mean to have a genetic component? At what point did that develop? Is that because of No idea. Will? I'll be honest with you. I, I don't know, even know what it is. I, I'm serious. I, I don't know. There have been a Baha'i says something very similar about Stone and Amora. It's like when we call a psychopath, I, I read recently about, about you know, uh, uh, Papa Savadi, and, and there are. A, a percentage of people that from the time they're babies, so some, sometimes it's you're mistreated, maltreated, and you act it out, and others sometimes just have to something they're wrong. Why should they, what is, I, I, don't, I don't know, but Rabbi Mechai says about Stoma Namora, he asked, um, I mean, they weren't given the Torah, so why, why for not giving charity were they, were they considered, um, were they worthy of being killed? So Rechai says there are certain <coughs> fundamental human qualities, like seeing a person hungry and starving, especially somebody of your own, your own uh, nation, your own people, and not doing anything about it, that means you're not human. You're not hardwired as a human, and they have no schus of kiyot. That's the way he describes it. I say here also, what that component is, why it is, how it is, I don't know. I, all, all I can give it is a general framework because I, I really I don't I don't have any way to, to, to flesh out the details. If they are basically just devils on earth, then why do we have to wait for them to attack us to get a command to kill them? There should be just a so, commandment. So I would say that Hagufa. That it's it's just like a Karishboro who knows what's inside us. Like it says, Atta Yadati Kirela by Avram. A who wants things to surface be comfortable and for us to understand. It's just like, you know, when you let a child sometimes do what he wants to do even though it's not going well and he and he suffer and there are consequences that naturally come and he suffers them then he understands. We need to see a Baruch Hu's justice and it's only when Amalek's wishes comes out 
that we understand that yes, Amalek is a nation that has no Sfuskiyah. That's and, and I guess again, generalizing in the Pasik, I would say it says they attacked you when you were traveling. There was no motive whatsoever. You know, uh, that's why it gets me very annoyed that people equate the Palestinians to Amalek. Palestinians and us are fighting over a piece of land. That's a fight. That's a normal fight. And if a guy comes to rob you, that's a f- that, that, at least there's a motive there. Amalek, we were traveling. We weren't out for the land. We had nothing to offer them. They weren't interested in our money. They just wanted to kill us. It's like the Nazis. You know, it, it, the anti-Semitism that's local, that anti-Semitism is understandable. You're successful, you're wealthy, you click together, you have cl- so the, the other person sees you there, so the Frenchman doesn't like you because you're not French, and you take away the French money, French is, then anti-Semitism at least is, is, it makes sense. The Nazis going to Albania to find a, a Jew or two, going to, 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 to Libya to find Jews, going to Greece and wasting time and money and effort and energy, that, that's, that's a L'shem Shemayim that is, it, it's not about money, it's not about goods, it's not about threats, it's just pure, either I exist or you exist. That's what made Amalek so, 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 that's when they showed there is a, just like Klai Yisrael is L'shem Shemayim, without a cheshben, they are anti-Shemayim and anti-Yisrael without a cheshben. Yeah? So, the, so well, what, what time do we have to... Maybe one or two more questions? It's really the answers that take the time, you know? <laughs> 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 right, you can just go through the questions and whatever. Okay, yeah, okay, yes. So one or two more questions, okay? Okay, so Avis Yisrael, um, you have to have Avis Yisrael for everybody, and how do we accomplish doing that? Um, and how do I have Avis Yisrael even for the guys the next to me in Shul, who davens very loudly? Who davens what? Very loudly. <laughs> oh, those are the terrible ones. <laughs> 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 you know. So we have to try to get Avis Yisrael people down too loud, and people don't show up in Shul. Like, we, 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 we have both... Uh, so so I, I think the word Avis Yisrael... Somebody once told me a taich that stayed with me, so my Elfenbein from Yisrael Meretzatora is retired now. He told me once, Vahavshecha doesn't mean to like everyone, to love everyone. Let's go back to that example. A person has a child. I feel the sense of pain and responsibility very acutely. And if a person has a brother or somebody, a relative, and they're, they're, they're difficult or whatever it is, I still try to feel responsible, and at the end of the day, we're in it together, and whether we like it or not. Avos Yisrael is along those lines. The understanding, A, that we, we have an affinity and a closeness that means even when I don't like him, I need to care deeply about him. And there's another element to it. Chalal Yisrael, whatever is written about Chalal Yisrael, requires all components of Chalal Yisrael. And, and, and it requires the good in this person, the good in this person, the good in this person. And I can't <coughs> make it without him. I can't do it without that other person. Um, so so uh, l- let's take an example. Imagine a business, and you have somebody doing research and development who's a super nerd. That's typical research development. And you have somebody doing marketing who's all over the place. And he's one of these jolly, you know, and so on and so forth. They, they naturally don't have an affinity for each other, 
but they learned to, they, on each one of them that he without the other person is not going to make it happen. If I don't have a product that's good, I can do all the marketing world, it's not going to sell. And this person understands I can have just product in the world. If I don't know how to get out to people, it's not going anywhere. And, and we understand we need each other. Kalyasol needs all the different types of people, even the people that I find disagreeable. Now, if it's the bad in the person, then we need to work it out. If it's the good in the person, I need to be able, I, even if he's different and he sees things differently than I do, I, I, it, we're together, we're tied together. It's, it's we're Siamese twins, and we're going to have to work together, and it's the only way there's Kalyasol. Those are two directions of thought about Kalyasol. Um, it's not just coming together and you know, doing coming good. It's not about um, liking each other. It's about understanding mutual responsibility and, and, uh, and mutual need in, in the deepest spiritual way possible. Yeah, one more question. I guess uh, just maybe as a closing remarks, is the Shiva want to share something? Um, you know what? Well, I guess take, go back to the, some of the original points and so on. I, I once um, I once heard a verse from Ricky Vega. I haven't found it myself. I heard it from Rodalia Eisman, the Mashkiach in 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 Kolteira. He says he said Shvilcha Bayam. The Lashon Pasuk is Akash pathways in the ocean. It's another word. I don't remember it offhand. And he said. When a person walks, um, when a person walks in, in and leaves footsteps, you can follow the footsteps. When when a person is traveling a road, he can half close his eyes and sort of let the horses keep to the road, and pretty good chance he'll get there. When you're in the ocean, you need to calculate every step of the way. Um, I think in the big picture, looking at many of the topics we spoke about, there is no, Yiddishkeit will never work on autopilot. Um, every generation has its challenges, and previous solutions work somewhat, um, and we need to constantly think. It's true about the cloud, it's true about the prat. You can never, there's no such thing as, okay, I've got it now, and now I can just be on autopilot. There is no autopilot. Shvilcha b'mayim rabim, I think, is the pasuk. Hakadosh Baruch Hu's pathway is in great waters. It means every step of the road, a person needs to calculate. It's true. Klaiso, like we got over a hump, and now there's a new hump. It's it's. There's no way to close our eyes and just create a system that will get there. We have to recalculate each generation, each kufa, um, what needs to be done, and people in their own lives. Um, each stage in life requires an understanding of how do I express in this stage of life the things, the values that I that I've stayed with. My values stay the same. My underlying purpose stays the same. But um, how I get there? What is this new tkufa mechayev? A person single. A person goes to yeshiva. A person gets married, a person joins a workplace, a person has children, a person marries off children, a person retires. Each tkufa needs to be reevaluated so that you express in the language of that se- section of life the values that are internal. The values are eternal and mutable, and how they express themselves and realize depends on each 
phase of, of life and each phase of Kali Yisrael's existence. Does Hashem, we should be able to go forward with the same eternal values, but understand in each phase of our lives and Kali Yisrael's to, to make it happen, make it work the way it's supposed to. Okay. <laughs> Something comes up, and the child feels comfortable yeah. speaking to the How does it create you never snap at a child. If, you, if, if, if a child is something and you're always patient and explaining, you know, you know, this isn't a smart thing, you know. It depends on the environment. There's environments where you get 